If you would, join me in turning in your copies of God's Word to the end of our Bibles, to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. I'm not sure why I am up here this morning. This is a kind of text that basically preaches itself. This is a, a big, a weighty, a thick sort of text. Um, so this morning, we will read it, we'll pray, then we will jump in and I will try not to get in the way. Um, as we read it together this morning, I'll read the whole chapter of Revelation 5. Try to scan with me the scene that unfolds before you, track some of the details. Think of it like a, a moving picture of sorts. Hear now God's holy and inspired word. Then I, that is John the Apostle, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders around fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped Let's pray. Our good and our mighty Father, 
We pray that you would be with us this morning. Soften our spirits, soften our hearts, be receptive to this text. Impress upon us the glory of your Son this morning. These things we ask in his name. Amen. Time is not a wheel, but if it was, you might imagine that the axis around the axis point around which that wheel spins, or, or the point around which human history turns, or that, that stabilizing and, and structuring center of all of human experience can be captured here in the apocalyptic vision of Revelation 5. In the grandest kind of way, this text is a reference point for reality. And that's what I would like us to consider this morning. Everything that happens before Christ takes the scroll is nothing other than the Father working out His plan for Christ to take the scroll. This is why we can think of the whole of redemptive history. Why we often speak of the whole of redemptive history from Genesis 3 onward as the the search for the true Son, the one who is worthy to rule God's holy people. This is why or this is why we are constantly looking throughout the Old Testament into the New for the one who will crush the serpent's head. And everything that happens after Christ takes the scroll is, as it were, an unfolding of the scroll. Christ ascends and takes his rightful place, and in the symbolic handing of the scroll, Jesus' words become verified that in fact all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. Think of the scroll here as, as like a reverse last will and testament. Right? Typically it's the kind of thing um, where the one who dies has written down kind of who gets what after him. But in this case, it's what God writes down for Christ to get after he dies and rises again. The text itself here, if you look near the end of our passage, in all of these little praise hymns we have, it interprets the significance of Christ receiving the scroll. Symbolized in this endowment is Christ receiving all things, as it were. All power, wealth, wisdom, might, glory, honor, riches, blessing. So another way to think about this moment is to think about this scene here as well as as part two, or perhaps the same event from a different angle that we see in Daniel chapter 7. If you recall in Daniel 7, one like a son of man approaches the Ancient of Days and, and takes his seat and receives a kingdom that would last forever, a kingdom that could not be destroyed. In this chapter, we see the same thing from a different camera angle and and with a different lens, as it were, because we we now understand more. We understand the Son of Man is also a lamb. 
And we understand that this, this kingdom and dominion that he has been given, it is filled with priests, the text says in verse 10 here. It would have been a, a spectacular sight, would it have not, if we could have been there when Jesus rose into heaven. See, in this text, God has given us something even richer. He has given us a better view of that event even than the apostles had who were standing there. Because we have front row seats in the heavenly courts where Christ goes after he disappears behind the clouds. This is what happens here. So history is marked by the before and by the after of Christ taking the scroll, but history turns around this text in yet another way. The drama here includes this perpetual worship of the Lamb. Every moment of worship in heaven, every instance of worship here on earth is an extension and a sharing in this same worship service we read about here. Worshiping the worthiness of Christ to be the one who can take the scroll. That is what and why we sing every Sunday morning. On the other hand, every rejection of Christ, every sin, every act of unbelief is a sharing in and a participating and a joining in on the slaying of the Lamb. And every single step that God's people take in faithfulness is taken in their new formed identity we see here as a kingdom of priests who, as John puts it later in chapter 14, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Is it strange to pick this text as a reference point for all of reality? <clears throat> this text, in which Jesus has seven eyes and seven horns and walks around like, like a lamb, that is dripping in his blood with these living creatures who seem neither to be angels nor to be humans. <clears throat> so how are we to think about this apocalyptic imagery, which is often confusing and, and sometimes even concerning to us? So here's one way I think that might be helpful to think about it. Good writers are capable of using prose to bring to our minds a very complex picture. Meanwhile, good painters, for instance, are good at um, painting pictures that are capable of expressing something beyond words, or at least worth a thousand words, as they say. Apocalyptic literature, uniquely, does both of these things at the same time. So John uses these words to, to paint a picture and put that picture before our eyes, and then that picture communicates something that mere words cannot. Imagine that God is drawing before you a lamb with seven eyes. You know the lamb is Jesus, and I think most of us here, and I think maybe better than most of us here, the young children among us could quite easily intuit that what God wants you to know is that that lamb can see really well. That's it. Its spirits are searching out the whole world, the text says. 
seven eyes, as it were, because seven is the Old Testament number of perfection. Similarly, the seven horns give a sense of power and might and, and strength, and the living creatures here give us the idea here listed along with the angels and the human elders that there is everything which has breath to praise, praising God. Now, there are other details in the text, and, and among the, these are also among them, these details of the drama, but I would ask this morning uh, that we don't get too caught up in them, because this morning I would like us to consider the larger picture of what's going on here. Let's just ask for a moment this morning why it is, why it is that God gave you front row seats to this heavenly drama. To put it in a sentence, Revelation 5 is a moving picture that makes sense of all of the nonsense in our lives. John's goal, not in this chapter or the rest of the book, is not to, to paint a cryptic or confusing picture that somehow corresponds to the more basic and concrete and real facts of human history. It is actually quite the opposite. The symbolic material here in Revelation is a peek into the spiritual, yes, symbolically communicated, yes, but very concrete and real realities of heaven the ones that actually make sense of our messy and confusing human history. The reason why we need glimpses like this is, and the reason that John's vision is such a profound gift from, from Jesus is that this world is not as it seems, and it is not as it should be. Why are there things like worldwide pandemics? Why do incurable, incurable diseases continue to be incurable despite all the advances of modernity? Or how can it be that as a leader in whatever sphere you are in, you may make your best efforts motivated by the best things, seeking the best for your people and your followers, nevertheless just grumble and question your motives and wish you were somebody else? How can you do the work of a teacher? trying so hard to get the ideas to stick only to watch your students leave and over and over forget. Why is it that our culture preaches radical inclusivism and yet those who don't go to church on Sunday hate you and are socially allowed to hate you for going? Why does the world pervert TV shows about dysfunctional families? to God's stories of redemption from dysfunction to perfect function? Why do your deep acts of love, of sharing the good news of the gospel with unbelievers, of pleading with them to enjoy eternal riches and blessing, why does that invitation come back to you as spit in your eye? Why is it that although you fall more in love with your family over time, with your parents, with your spouse, with your children, it is only at the same time as you come closer and closer to the point of losing them to death? 
How is it that faithful parenting can result in wayward children? Why do the wicked and evil prosper? It is all rather inverted. It's not fair, as it were. Why is it that we grow in wisdom, we grow in holiness, we can grow in purity, we can be sanctified more and more, but at the same time our outer bodies just decay more and more? Why is it that Jesus, he tells us, has brought us to life and every day we are still personally familiar with the tremors of death and the residue of the old man? It is this world and this experience, people of God, that does not make sense. The vision here, which is drenched in symbolism that communicates more effectively than mere literalisms, is actually a description of the fact which is just as real as our lived experience, but is one of even greater significance. It is the drama around which your life turns, whether you've realized it, or not. All that stuff that does not make sense comes to make sense with reference to this drama. <clears throat> Since we teach this to our children, it should not be too difficult for us to understand, as it were, that um, others around us, the world and everyone in it, they're not supporting characters in our own story. And despite what many of us would like to think, or despite what we may think more often than we admit, God's providence and God's plans are not just the settings or the plot twists in your story. Rather, our story and the whole of history, in fact, revolves around and plays a supporting role in this drama. It is the drama about a slaughtered lamb king and his loyal bunch of royal priests. So this morning, do not look at this text as a a mere poetic spectacle, although it it is beautiful, isn't it? Rather, see it as the script or the reference point for the divine drama in which you actually live. Did you know that you were a part of something so beautiful? God's goal for us this morning is to say the least then, that we would get with the program. That we would jump into the liturgy of this text. There are roles here for you to play and there are lines for you to sing. And when you find your story within this story, experience begins to make more sense. To this end, I would invite you not only to read this chapter, but the whole book. Let's consider this morning, then, um, some of the more salient details of, of this drama together. Look first at the beginning few verses here. 
notice that after the Father's hand extends with the scroll, John's first reaction is not worship, but weeping. Why? The search for one who is worthy, it has extended into heaven, but no one is to be found there because the throne belongs to a son of Adam, not an angel. But when the search extends to earth, and even going as desperately far as under the earth, no, not one is found righteous. John might have for a moment, have even, even panicked at the thought that not even his Savior Jesus had been found. He weeps because he pastors the seven churches who received letters at the beginning of Revelation and perhaps a number of other congregations he, he oversees. And so he knows their desperate situation and in fact he knows your desperate situation and your suffering, your, your decay, your experiences of death and all its effects. And he knows that if no one is there to take the scroll, there is no protection for God's children in their hour of bitter trial. There is no judgments on a persecuting world, no ultimate triumph for believers, no new heavens, no new earth, no resurrection, no future inheritance. And what brings John's weeping to an end? He hears a loud and glorious and comforting announcement of the gospel by an elder. Behold, the Lion of Judah. Look, there's a lion. The root of David. He has come. He has conquered. John is told, look, it's a king. It's a lion. And he turns, and what he sees is a lamb. Don't miss this. This is the center point to the passage. It's, it's the difference between what John hears and what John sees. It's, it's the kind of profound point that only a picture book like Revelation can make. The victorious Davidite, who is the Lion of Judah, is truly also a lamb. What is more unexpected than replacing the, the tall, handsome, popular king with the shepherd boy from Jesse's family? Well, how about crowning one of his lambs? The point here begins to unfold, that if you are to understand who this king is, if you are to follow this king, you need to have insight into the particular, strange, unfamiliar kind of way that he comes to be king and that he rules. Consider, then, the lamb standing as though slain. Now, I don't want us to assume that this is normal language for what you might do to a sacrifice. The word slain here, it's not a sacrificial term. It's, it's really murderous language. It's violent. Yes, the idea of sacrifice here is present because Jesus is called a lamb. And, and yes, you are supposed to remember Isaiah 53 you are supposed to remember the Passover. You are supposed to remember the millions of lambs that Israel had, had sacrificed over the years. But this is the lamb, uniquely, who humbly offers himself precisely by being violently and murderously slaughtered 
by the people for whom he is dying. Now this does not repudiate this meek and and ultimately loving and self-sacrificing humility does not repudiate the message John hears about a lion. Rather, the lamb standing as slain is what makes it true that this is the conquering lion. And what you have to do here is come to embrace that upside-down logic that is actually upside right, which gives us a new reference point for how to think about such things. Look again at verse 6 here. This is, this is subtle. But John actually writes nonsense on purpose. What happens when you slay a lamb? Or any living thing, think of yourself, what happens when you die? Do you lie down or do you stand up? You come across a lamb, lie in their limp, you might conclude that it was slain. When, when children are playing imaginary games, one might easily call to another, okay, now you go over there and lie down like you're, like you're slain. But it is completely nonsense. It just does not compute in any mode of normal human discourse for you to hear, okay, now you, you go over there and you stand up victoriously. You know that you were just slaughtered in battle. It, it's nonsense. But here's the profound thing. John does not write these words because he is a poetic genius. It, it, it's, it's not here the effective trick of a good poet or author to, to twist words into, into idioms that you wouldn't normally use to communicate something kind of beyond reality. That's not what's happening here. Here John is the faithful reporter telling you what he sees. It's not that John writes this nonsense in order to help us make sense of something beyond reality. No, he reports this true fact of great significance that is behind reality and that makes sense of the nonsense we experience every day. When we, as God's redeemed people, feel the tremors of death that in Christ do not belong to us, that we do not deserve. That is what makes, what needs making sense of. That is what needs right-wising. Death doesn't belong, and so Jesus came to conquer it on the cross. So John sees captured in this picture not simply that death's victory is penultimate, not simply that death's ultimate is, is temporary, or that death's blow has been softened, but that Jesus came and took the devil's last weapon and transformed its meaning into the means of his victory. That's what John sees. The sacrificial Lamb of God stands victorious precisely in and in no other way than in being slain. That is the fact of great significance captured in this simple phrase, the Lamb stands, the Lamb is resurrected, the Lamb is lion, the Lamb is king, as slaughtered. Many cultures, including our own, 
in many different ways, like to speak of death with faintly hopeful metaphors or aphorisms about how death is a moving on, or there's a life beyond, or death is, is somehow a kind of entry into a new kind of existence, a new life. <clears throat> but John says here, he shows us here that it is Jesus and only Jesus who we can quite literally see in the sense of the vision here. It is only Jesus for whom death is, in fact, now a signature of victorious life. And for those who believe in him, it is true of them as well. That is the reference point that gives death and its effects in your life, one of the most common features of our experience, a different meaning. A different meaning than it wants you to give it. The idea is that, that death is the powerful, undefeatable enemy which puts a clicking timer on your life. That death is, is that which relativizes the meaning of life, that which threatens to end all of your relations, threatens to squash and destroy the little security and kingdom you've built up for yourself. Jesus says, Jesus has made all of those things nonsense. He reverses how we ought to interpret our experience. And, and you here today, who believe in Christ Jesus, share in the new existence that Christ defines. Not death. His blood is so pure that it could not be held by death. His blood is so precious, the text says, that, that <clears throat> he purchased your redemption, ransomed you. And his death was such a powerful death blow to death that it actually brought you to life and established this, this new dominion and kingdom that he populates with his royal priests, a dominion filled with those who are redeemed. Christ's obedience and, and his blood when he was slaughtered at the cross prove that he is without question the one who is worthy. And so, these are the truths we proclaim and we sing as we share in the new song we read about here. Look at verses 9 and 10. You, Christ, are worthy. Why? Middle of verse 9. You are worthy because you died. For or because you were slain, it says. You ransomed the people. You made them a kingdom and priests and they shall reign. Now notice, not just you shall reign, they shall reign. Who is they? They is you. So the goal here of, of the Lamb's death is not just that the church would persist in the world and continue existing, but that the church would come to take its place as participants in God's eternal rule. What does that look like? Well, in the, in the new earth, you will rule with glory, enthroned, ruling over the, the world with, with Christ. But at present, you share in His reign by following the Lamb, by singing His praise, and by inviting others to sing too. 
The Lamb's work means you now play this indispensable role in his new kingdom, in the outworking of God's kingdom, because he, he has brought you, as it were, into this script as his loyal bunch of royal priests. Focus on, on this phrase, royal priests, for a moment. Or, as the text puts it here, a kingdom and priests. Or, as Exodus puts it, where this phrase uh, first comes to us in Scripture, a kingdom of priests. The basic meaning in, in this idea is that God has brought us out of the world and has consecrated us as those who are now to bless the world. The death of the Lamb frees us, as it were, to fulfill our calling to perform works of worship and mercy and teaching for the sake of others. We don't have to waste our energies on self-promotion or on building up our own kingdom or, or this utopia around us that protects us from evil and establishes our own peace. Christ already did that. When, when our experience tempts us, when our, when our peers and our vocations tempt us to, to consider that our purpose is to establish our own kingdom, when the world presses this call upon your life, Remember this heavenly reality as your reference point. We are rescued out of slavery to death by the Lamb King and made free to serve the world as his priests and ambassadors. Listen to what Peter says in his first letter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So being a royal priest first means proclaiming God and his gospel. Proclaim it to the world, but there's also more involved. We proclaim Christ here as we imitate the great high priest who not only administered the ultimate sacrifice as a priest, but who on behalf of us gave himself as that sacrifice. What that means is that we must consider it this way, that, that, that to be a kingdom of priests under the great high priest means that like him, the sacrifice we make is our whole lives. You cannot share in Christ's priesthood without sharing in his identity as the Lamb. Listen to Paul, Romans 12:1. You know this well. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. So you, you present your bodies in the work of the priest, and, and it is yourself that you sacrifice as a lamb. This, Paul says, is your spiritual act of worship. Or the word worship in that verse may be better translated as, as temple service. And this is the word from which we get the word liturgy. Being brought out of Sodom and Egypt and planted in Zion as his new temple, what we are to do now, as described by Peter and Paul and here by John, is to be, to 
the world, Christ. Mediating His excellencies, as Peter said. The Gospel of Christ by, as Paul puts it elsewhere, carrying around in our bodies His death. That we might make known the glory of His resurrection. This is your script in the drama when you follow the Lamb standing as slain. If you were to read the rest of Revelation, you would also see that this, this theme of his lamb, of this lamb and his followers, it shows up a number of times. And, and what you would find is that these royal priests are a rather loyal bunch. The phrase that best captures this, I mentioned earlier, is in chapter 14. And there, John describes these believers as those who, those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And where does the lamb go? Yes, to victory. But first, listen to John in chapter 12. He, he says, Salvation and power and the kingdom and authority of Christ have come because the accuser has been thrown down, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony. Did you catch that? In, in Christ, you too are the one who conquers the accuser by Christ's blood and by testifying to it. So yes, you follow the Lamb to victory, but first, John continues on and says, they have conquered for following the Lamb, they loved not even their lives, even unto death. That's where the Lamb goes. John asks implicitly, do you love Christ more than your life? This is a grand kind of text that forces us to ask grand types of questions like that. People of God, your place in this drama is to follow the Lamb by sharing in the worship of His worthiness and continuing in your faithful witness all the way down to the grave, which is your place of life because of the work of Christ. And this heavenly reference point gives you the freedom to give Christ everything. That Christ has redefined death for you. It gives you the opportunity and, and, and capacity to consider and even to come to the settled conviction that as you follow the Lamb, every assault, every sting, every tremor, every time you face or feel death in your body, you can know that that death, it is a great farce, an irony. Every attempt death makes against you is swallowed up into your story as a victorious, loyal, royal priest of the slaughtered lamb king. By the end of the passage, in these climactic verses of worship, what we see here is the whole world, not just the heavens, not just the Lamb's followers, but the whole world, even the creatures in the sea, it says. The whole world worshiping Christ for being worthy. This is the true script. It is the reference point of reality. It is the place the world will find in this drama, whether it knows it or not. 
Take as your reference point for your life this story of the Lamb. And when you do that, you will find yourself as a priest who is called to summon the world to join heaven and to join us in singing of the worthiness of the Lamb. And as you invite others to sing, and as you sing, let those words proceed from your lips seamlessly, without pause, without inconsistency, without hesitation, from the whole self-sacrificial liturgy of your life. In which you follow the Lamb wherever He goes, all the way to death and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank your name for your marvelous scriptures and for the inexpressible gift and work and accomplishment of of your Son. We thank you, Lord, for the profundities of his work and we ask that you would impress them upon our lives. Give us Lenses to see the world from this heavenly perspective. Be with us as we suffer with you and for you. As we proclaim your name. And fill us with strength as we sing your praises. Be with us, we pray. Amen.